to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number three in the series. Today's episode is titled, The Birth of Achilles. So welcome to episode number three of Trojan War, the podcast. This episode is titled, The Birth of Achilles. Now, a lot of you, you've been into the podcast for two episodes already, and so you know how this process operates, and you know that I'm telling an ongoing epic story in serialized form, and we're on to episode number three. But there's a possibility that some of you listening right now have stumbled across this podcast completely by accident, and this is your first exposure to Trojan War, the epic. And if that's the case, well, you're more than welcome to hang around. In this particular episode, I'm going to be recounting a lot of the really incredibly interesting and fun stories about the birth and the early childhood years of the great hero Achilles. And these stories in this particular episode will serve very nicely as a freestanding independent episode. You'll, you'll have an awful lot of fun. On the other hand, I'd venture that you'll have even more awful lot of fun if you, instead of listening to this episode right away, make a quick trip over to my website and tune into podcast episodes number one, followed by podcast episode number two before you get on to this one. Either choice is yours, and um, I'll let you make that right now. So, if you recall back to the end of episode number one, the episode titled The Apple of Discord, the wedding of Peleus and Thetis had been horribly disrupted by the goddess of Discord. Now, Peleus, you'll recall, was a Bronze Age Greek warlord, sort of a, a medieval kind of king in the Bronze Age, and Thetis, his bride his very reluctant bride, who had been forced to marry him against her wishes, well, Thetis was an immortal sea nymph. Well, the two of them had left the wedding hall in Mount Olympus and made their way back to Peleus's estate and done their best to settle into some sort of a domestic routine, Peleus desperately hoping that someday Thetis would warm to him, and Thetis, who was quite convinced that she had married a man about 900 stations below her own dignity. My God, he was a mortal of all things. Well, the two of them were trying to make their marriage work, but it wasn't very happy. But something good must have happened. Because our story opens nine months after Peleus and Thetis returned to Peleus' estate. And in every story, of course, if you've moved forward nine months, well, it means that a baby is on the way. And indeed, a baby is on the way. As our story opens, Thetis is in the ladies' quarters of the palace in the birthing room, actually sitting on the birthing chair and accompanied by a midwife deep into the throes of labor. Peleus, meanwhile, being a Bronze Age man, is staying as far away from the mystery of birth as possible. He's in the far end of the palace. Like like, like men in all cultures everywhere up to the present, us guys seem to really be into the conception end of the proceedings and much less enthusiastic about the nine months later delivery end. So, 
Our story opens with Thetis laboring and Peleus pacing. Peleus, of course, though he doesn't want to watch the mysteries of birth, is deeply invested in this child that his wife is giving birth to. And, and Peleus is desperately, desperately, desperately hoping two things. He's hoping, first of all, that the child is healthy. And number two, he's desperately hoping that the child that his wife is about to give birth to is a boy, a son. And there are reasons for this, of course. Peleus is a Bronze Age warlord, and he knows that his primary duty is to produce a son, an heir, and ideally a backup emergency son or two in case something happens to the first one, so that if Peleus dies early in battle or in disease or illness or misadventure or something like that, there is a very clear and designated line of succession to inherit Peleus's kingdom. Because if, if there isn't a male son, if there isn't an heir, then of course the possibility is that if Peleus dies, his kingdom will collapse into strife and possibly civil war as different factions and relatives and families argue for who should take over Peleus's estate. So Peleus has a duty to produce a son and then get very quickly on to producing a second and a third son, ideally, as quickly as possible. Well, as I said, Thetis labors, Peleus paces. And then the midwife came rushing into the men's quarters of the palace with the good news. Thetis had given birth to, gods be praised, a healthy child and gods be doubly praised, a boy. Well, Peleus was overjoyed, thrilled with this news, and he, he, he rushed to the ladies' quarters of the palace where by this stage he was fully expecting that the midwife would have cleaned up the baby, cut the umbilical cord, and the baby would be ready for the presentation of dad. He made it to the birthing room, and that's when things went bad. He discovered his wife, Thetis, cradling in her arms, a dead baby boy. A baby boy that not five minutes earlier, when the midwife had left the birthing room looking for Peleus, had been declared healthy and happy and alive and kicking in all respects. And now here was Peleus's first son, dead. There wasn't a scratch in the boy's body. Well, it hit Peleus like a punch to the gut. And I, I know there are people listening that will go, well, you know, we know about infant and, and maternal mortality rates in the Bronze Age world, and they're shockingly high. And an awful lot of babies, of course, didn't actually survive birth itself for the first few days afterwards. So you could be a cruel clinical statistician here and say, well, the odds weren't that great that the baby would survive anyway. So why is Paleo so upset? But I, I still have to imagine that it was his son. And now his son is dead, and I'm sure nothing prepared Peleus for that. Well, Peleus sucked in his gut and thought, well, I should likely comfort Thetis. But Thetis, the sea nymph who was still holding the dead corpse in her arms, appeared distinctly unmoved by the loss of her child. Thetis appeared detached, cold, distant even, and Peleus was confused by this briefly, and then he thought, well, she is an immortal sea nymph. She is a deity. Maybe she expresses her emotions differently than a human woman might. So Peleus put it out of his mind. Well, the next couple of weeks in the Peleus family palace were pretty rough as Peleus adjusted to the shock of having lost his son, but 
Eventually, Peleus sucked in his gut and he reasoned, well, I'm young, I'm fit, I'm healthy. And and Thetis, an immortal senior, well, she will always be young and fit and healthy. We will just try again. And so within a few months, Peleus was back on the horse, so to speak, and Thetis was pregnant with her second child. Well, folks, I'll save you the melodrama, the pathos, and, and, and the tragedy and the possible suspense by very quickly recounting what happened next. A normal birth, a healthy baby declared by the midwife, and by the time Peleus had made it to the birthing room to inspect the boy, another dead baby in his wife Thetis's arms. And over the years to follow, it happened six times in a row. Six pregnancies, six healthy baby boys, and then within five minutes of the birth of those healthy baby boys, six dead children cradled in Thetis's arms. Well, by the end of the six dead child, Peleus was a physical and emotional wreck. It was taking a terrible, terrible toll on him. He, the only reason he continued to attempt to have more children is because he, he knew he had this duty to, to produce a son to inherit his estates. The strangest thing, though, is that Thetis, with the death of every one of her children, seemed singularly unmoved and unconcerned by the entire process and the loss. And after death number six, Peleus began to wonder and suspect things that those of us listening have likely already been wondering and suspecting sometime earlier. So during pregnancy number seven, Peleus decided to act on his suspicions. He secretly drilled a tiny spy hole into the wall of the birthing room in the ladies' quarters. And when Thetis went into labor, Peleus discreetly moved into an adjoining room and watched through that spy hole the mysteries of birth as they unfolded. And what Peleus saw confirmed his worst fears, suspicions, and nightmares. His wife Thetis had a normal labor, an easy one actually, And then a baby was born. The midwife cut the umbilical cord, washed the child, held him up for inspection, and then turned around to Thetis and said, God's be praised and God's willing, my lady, this one is a boy and this one maybe will live. Then the midwife had placed the baby in Thetis' arms and said, I will will go get Peleus. I will tell him the good news. And as Peleus watched from his spy hole, he watched what Thetis did the minute the midwife left the room. She took her child, her healthy boy, son number seven, grasped him firmly by the feet, turned him upside down, and plunged him headfirst into a bucket of salt water that was sitting beside the birthing chair and held him there. And Peleus suddenly realized what had happened to his first six sons. Thetis, his reluctant bride, the sea nymph, was drowning all of them. Well, Peleus, on instinct, immediately left his spy room, charged into the birthing room, grabbed the little baby boy, pulled him out of the salt water, slapped him on the back, and gods be praised, the kid coughed and spluttered for a few moments, but was then very obviously alive. Well, Peleus drew his sword and then turned to confront his wife, 
and asked her the obvious question, why have you been drowning our children? And Thetis, the reluctant sea nymph, showed no, no remorse, no guilt, no sense of apology, nothing. She coldly and clinically looked at Peleus and she explained to him that she hadn't wanted to marry Peleus, that this had been forced on her by Zeus and that she didn't like sleeping with Peleus. In fact, she loathed sleeping with Peleus, but again, that had been forced on her by Zeus, but there was no way under Zeus's creation that she was going to give birth and raise half-breed human children. Now, it's interesting, inside of a lot of the epics, well, we might not understand Thetis's reluctance, but inside of the epics, it's pretty clear. In the epic tradition, in the Bronze Age world, and, and not just inside of Greek mythology, but all over the place, well, in a lot of the stories, there's a curious and strange sort of double standard going on. If, if a coupling happens between a male god and a female human, then the child that's produced, that moment of immaculate conception is celebrated as a wonderful, awesome gift. And, and, and the child, the child is considered something truly, truly special. But in the very rare, rare cases in, in Greek mythology and when the reverse happens and a human male impregnates a goddess, well, the goddess isn't too thrilled about it and the child is generally neglected, despised and rejected by the female goddess. It's a double standard. So just in fairness to Thetis, she's not the only goddess that has been revolted at the idea of being forced to give birth to a human being on a male husband. Well, whatever the case, Peleus, he, he looked at Thetis. He, he, he didn't know how to respond. He, he was beside himself. What, what do you do with this? What do you do with this situation? But there was an immediate problem, of course. The baby required feeding. And this was the Bronze Age. So Peleus didn't have the option of immediately putting him onto some form of baby formula. The baby needed to be breastfed and the baby was hungry. And Peleus pointed at Thetis and he struck a bargain with her. He said, listen, I want you out of this palace and out of this child's life as quickly as possible. But the boy has got to live. So you feed him and you stay here and I will watch and make sure that nothing goes wrong when you feed him until I have an opportunity to send out messengers. We will bring a wet nurse in. And the moment I found somebody to raise this child and feed him, I will raise him on my own and you Thetis can return to the Mediterranean. I never want to see you again. You will have nothing to do with my boy. But right now I need you to feed him. And Peleus had forced the tiny baby boy onto the reluctant sea nymph's breast. And he began to suckle. And in that moment, well, the weirdest thing happens. And I can only account what the myths tell us, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not responsible for the stories. But the myths are pretty clear that the strangest thing happened. The moment that Thetis allowed that baby boy to breastfeed, well... The reluctant sea nymph suddenly was overwhelmed by maternal love and urges which she had never experienced in her life and which, well, completely, completely, completely threw her. Thetis underwent an instant, well, forgive me, sea change. And after killing her first six children with salt water. It was very clear that Thetis was in love and was going to set out to smother the seventh one in love and maternal kindness. 
It's hard to explain. I mean, modern day psychology would say, well, this is just an illustration of the powerful bond that is created between mother and child through through the act of breastfeeding. And, and you know, if that's the case, then Thetis would certainly be the ultimate poster girl for the Lalesh League people. But it's still hard to believe. In fact, so hard to believe that for the few weeks after it happened, Peleus kept the closest of eyes on Thetis. He never let the little baby out of his sight. And it took him about a month before he actually genuinely believed that this miracle had happened and Thetis was actually desperately in love with her little baby boy and was not going to harm him, but instead was going to use everything inside of her power as as a demigod to try to protect her child from harm. And so the little baby boy, well, seventh son, son number seven, grew up and lived happily under the maternal love of Thetis the sea nymph and under the paternal care and protection of Peleus the proud father who finally had an heir for his throne. Well the day came when the little baby turned one year old. Now inside of Bronze Age culture what with the horrifying infant mortality rates and things like that a lot of the time you you didn't really even bother to name your child until the child had made it to the end of his first year of life because the odds were that so many of those babies were going to die in the first year anyway so don't get yourself too attached to the kid till he gets to one. But by the time children got to one year old, well, an awful lot of the worst of the hazards of the early years were over. And it was time to have a birthday and a name day celebration for the child. Now it was time to invite the friends and the family and the relatives in and to give the child a name. So Peleus asked Thetis, do you have any ideas? Do you know what you want to call the kid? And Thetis said, I've been thinking about it for a little while. Now, of course, Thetis didn't have the advantage of all the baby name books or website searches that we would today. She was kind of left on her own in a preliterate culture to come up with a name. But she, she came up with a short list and she, she brought the short list to her husband, Peleus, and said, I've got a few ideas. Let me run them by you. And Peleus said, it's a kid. He's healthy. He's a boy. I don't really care about what are you thinking of? And she said, well, I, the first one I thought might be nice is I was thinking of calling him Arthur. Peleus looked a little confused at that. He said, it doesn't sound very Greek. So she went down the list. Frodo. No, not so much, Peleus said. She said, uh, uh, I don't know, Harry. What do you think of Harry? And again, Peleus said, I'm not quite sure that's right. And in quick succession, she she went through a couple others and finally said, maybe Luke. Peleus didn't like any of them. Thetis came back a day later and she said, well, this one's a little bit off the beaten path. But what what if we called her son Achilles? Peleus sighed. He said, well, it doesn't sound like a very heroic name. No one will remember it, but I, whatever. He's healthy. The boy's name will be Achilles. And so, ladies and gentlemen, the little baby boy, the seventh son, the son who lived, ended up being named Achilles. Well, they held a huge party and, and celebrated the, the birthday of Achilles, the name day of Achilles. And uh, all of Peleus' relatives, the human relatives, trundled to the Peleus estate and they brought gifts. And even some of the folks from Thetis' side of the family came. And even a couple of the Olympian goddesses graced the occasion with their presence. And everybody was having a fine old time. It was a wonderful party until sometime in the wee hours of the morning when, well, it sort of went off the rails a little bit. And here's what happened. A couple of the minor goddesses visiting from Mount Olympus had, well, maybe got a little bit too deep into the nectar and began to to chat in a corner in what they thought were soft voices, but which were actually loud, drunken voices. And they were overheard by Thetis. And Thetis immediately, who was very, very concerned about anything to do with Achilles, said, I heard you talking. I heard my son's name. What are you talking about? 
And the goddesses, realizing they've been overheard, said, well, nothing, nothing, nothing. We were just saying we're really happy about Achilles. And they just said, I heard you say the word prophecy. And she she eventually wrestled out of the two goddesses what they'd been gossiping about. And the gist of it was that the two goddesses up in Olympus had heard a series of prophecies concerning this child, Achilles. And well, apparently up on Mount Olympus, the gossip circles were alive and talking about this thing, but they were trying to keep it from Thetis and now it was too late. So Thetis said, what have you learned? And the, the goddesses, well, spilled the beans. And here's what the prophecies were saying about the little baby Achilles. The prophecies said that Achilles, unlike any other human being who had ever walked the face of the earth, was going to have not one fate or destiny, but instead two possible fates or destinies, two possible routes or paths or roads that that Achilles was going to follow through his life. Well, Thetis pressed, she said, well, what are the two paths? What are the two roads? And, and the goddesses said, well, the one possible option for your son is that he will grow up to be the greatest, most celebrated warrior in the entire history of, of, well, of the Bronze Age and of every age for that matter. And he will have amazing exploits. He will do heroic deeds. Everybody will know his name. He'll live a glorious, heroic, wonderful, exciting, glamorous life. And then he will die violently in his youth. Uh, Theta said, oh, and what's option number two? Well, in option number two, Achilles was going to lead a long, quiet, simple, restrained life, surrounded by nothing but a small circle of immediate family and friends, and then in his very, very late years, die peacefully and quietly in his bed, to be forgotten by history forever. Well, Thetis made further inquiries of the goddesses. She said, well, this thing about two possible fates. I mean, you don't normally get to choose your fate, but if there's two routes, does, is my son Achilles going to get to choose? Is, is he going to get to decide which of these two options? Or, or are they, is one of them just going to eventually happen to him? And the goddesses genuinely didn't know. Nobody knew. So whether Achilles was going to get to choose between plan A, uh, heroic short life, and plan B, uh, long, boring, tedious life, or whether one of the two was just going to happen to him inevitably sometime in the future, well, that was a question that nobody on Olympus even knew the answer to. Well, Thetis, of course, immediately and quite reasonably began to worry about the long-term well-being of her son because Thetis knew that well, she lived in a Bronze Age culture that celebrated war. Achilles' dad was a celebrated warlord, and she knew that her son Achilles would someday become a teenager and have confronted with the choice between fate one, heroic celebrity and early death, or fate two, a long, boring, tedious life. Well, she knew that as a teenager, Achilles would choose plan A. And Thetis thought, I don't want my boy to die. I want to keep him alive through his youth. I want him to have a long and happy life, even if it's got to be a mortal life. So Thetis, the sea nymph, had sat up all night after everybody else had left Achilles' name day party, researching how she could possibly avert the fates and ensure that her son ended up living a long, quiet, peaceful, happy life and didn't in any way end up dying violently in his youth. She she consulted everybody. She even made a quick trip up to Mount Olympus and talked to a couple of the deities. And by morning, she had found a possible solution. She had learned of an obscure prophecy concerning Achilles, yet another prophecy. This, this boy, like all the heroes and all the great epics, well, 
the prophecies, the stories about what would happen, about the portents, about the signs and everything like that, they were there well in advance of the birth of Achilles himself. And now Thetis found this prophecy. And in the morning when Peleus woke up, he realized that she was already bundling up Achilles. And he said, what are you doing? And, and Thetis said, we're going on a road trip. Come on, we have to leave right away. Peleus said, where are we going? And Thetis said, we're going to, we're going to protect our, our son Achilles from, from a possible violent death in his youth. And with no further explanation, they, they hopped onto horses in a chariot and off they went. Thetis very clear in where they were going and Peleus just following along behind, desperately holding on tight to the little bundle of one-year-old Achilles. Well, where Thetis directed them was to the river Styx. Now, Thetis, as an immortal sea nymph, would have been very familiar with this river. The river Styx was a river that surrounded the land of the living from the land from the dead. And if it, when, when people died and they made the passage from the land of the living to, to Hades, the land of the dead, they had to cross the river Styx with the help of a ferryman usually. And while the river Styx was always purported to have these special and magical qualities, but the interesting thing about the prophecy that Thetis had heard about the river Styx is that the prophecy had stated that if... Achilles were to be dipped into the river Styx, then the river Styx's magical properties would somehow act as a protective coating over the flesh of the child Achilles and render him immune from any form of scratch, cut, or injury as long as he was alive. In short, this river was going to have incredibly protective qualities for Achilles. And, and, and Thetis reasoned, well, the kid can't be cut, scratched, or harmed. Then as he grows up and he chooses a path of heroic warriordom and, and goes off into wild and crazy battles and adventures, well, I won't have to worry about him being killed in those battles or adventures. So mom had reasoned, well, I'm going to take the kid to the river and dip him in the river and maybe the prophecy will be right and maybe it will help. Well, they traveled all day by chariot and late that afternoon, they made it to the shores of the river Styx. They got off the chariot and Peleus holding on to his, his one year old son, Achilles, brought him down to the shores of the river and uh, Thetis followed along and looked at the river. And when, when Peleus saw the river, of course, his heart sunk because the river Styx was in full spring flood. Peleus dipped his finger into the river and realized, I, I don't think I could hold my finger in that river for more than a minute before it would freeze. How are we possibly going to dunk my child into the river to protect him from harm? And he said, let's not do this, Thetis. But Thetis said, the prophecy said, this is the only way to protect our son from harm. We will do it. So Thetis had taken her son, who she loved, and taken off his clothes and gone down to the very edge of the river, right near a very fast section of current, stripped Achilles naked, and then held him upside down by the feet and prepared to dunk him into the river. And it was only then that the whole shattering, dramatic irony of the situation hit Thetis as she realized that the prophecy was requiring her to, well, to do to her seventh son, the one she wanted to live, precisely what she had done to kill the six previous boys dunk them head first into cold water. Well, she was shaken for a moment. Was this some form of fate or some form of deific revenge? Was she going to drown this child? But she had done her research. She, she thought her sources were good on this prophecy. So with the little baby Achilles hanging upside down in the air, held by the foot, Theta said, Mummy loves you. This is for your own good and plunged her kid headfirst into the icy waters of the river Styx. She held him there 
for five full seconds, counting down from five, five, four, three, two. Poor, poor Peleus nearly passed out in fear as he watched this happen, just convinced that Sun Never Seven was about to drown too. But Thetis made it down to the count of zero, pulled young Achilles out of the water, and gods be praised, Achilles, though he was blue, coughing and screaming and choking, was very much alive. So, they dried him off, they bundled him up, they brought him back to the Peleus family estate, and then it was just a matter of watching and waiting to see if the River Styx did its magic thing. Would Achilles be immune from all form of physical injury? Well, they didn't have to wait for long. About six months after the incident at the River Styx, Thetis had left Achilles in the care of Peleus, and Peleus had decided to bring the boy out into the fields. Peleus was supervising some work on his farms, and Peleus was watching Achilles. Achilles was already an incredibly trundly little athlete of a a one-and-a-half-year-old. He was crawling around quite nicely and comfortably on his own, and so he was following along Dad. His dad was reviewing the work in the fields, and as Peleus was briefly distracted, a poison snake slithered into the fields. The poison snake slithered up to a two-ton ox, bit the ox in the heel, and the oxen immediately rolled over and died. Well, the servants, seeing this, recognized that there was a poison serpent in the field. One of the servants grabbed a sword and charged quite heroically, and it turned out pointlessly at the serpent, swung, missed, and then the servant got bit by the serpent himself. And the servant rolled over and died instantly. And then, to Peleus' horror, because he was some way down the fields and couldn't get there in time, the serpent slithered up to the one-and-a-half-year-old baby boy Achilles. And the serpent bit Achilles. And the serpent died instantly. The kid, it turned out, could not be harmed or injured. And as the months went by and as the years went by, it was very obvious to Peleus and Thetis that the river Styx had done his job. There was nothing you could do. This this kid, it didn't matter what you did to him. He came out of it without a scratch or a bruise on his body. And as a consequence, as Achilles grew up, as he got seven, eight, nine, ten years old, Achilles began to gradually transform into... Well, the most incredible warrior and soldier that the Bronze Age world had ever seen because Achilles was just one incredibly kick-ass gifted athlete. Now, if you think about it, there is a reason why. I grew up playing some sports and I had lots of coaches when I grew up playing sports. You know, say those cliches like, when you go out there onto the field, boys, make sure that you give 100%. Well, I never gave 100% because I realized very quickly that I could give 80%. But if I gave somewhere between 80 and 100%, well, 90% was likely going to lead to me getting badly injured and 100% was likely going to be death. So I always held off. I, I, I never really wanted to give it all because I wanted to live. I didn't want to get hurt. But can you imagine the situation of a, of a young athlete today? If the young athlete knew that no matter how hard they tried, no matter what percentage they gave, no matter how crazy a move they tried to make with their sword or no matter how crazy a move they tried to make leaping from one chariot to another, that even if the move failed, they weren't going to be hurt, injured, scratched, or bruised. Well, then you could give a hundred percent. And that's what Achilles 
turned out to be. So by the time he was 13 years old, he, he had turned into history's most gifted athlete. And of course, athletics in the ancient Bronze Age world were just preparation for war. I mean, Achilles practiced running. He practiced racing chariots. He practiced throwing javelins. He practiced mock sword fighting, that sort of thing. And by the time he was 13, he was, he was besting men twice his age with twice the experience. But it wasn't just in the athletic department that Achilles was gifted and blessed. His mom, you know, was, was a demigod. So Achilles, though he was fully human, had incredible DNA running through his system. And as a consequence, Achilles was not only a gifted athlete, he was also blessed with a stunningly hot body. I mean, this guy was naturally ripped and cut. Achilles didn't spend a day in the gym, but he had credible pecs. Uh, he had a six-pack of abs by the time he was 12 years old, long, lean muscles. And it, it wasn't just his body that was amazing. He had devastatingly good looks. This guy had long, golden, flowing locks. Uh, he seemed to be born with just the perfect sun-kissed tan. And, and his face, well, he had these sensitive, pouty lips and deep blue eyes that when you looked into them would melt your heart. Ladies and gentlemen, in short, Achilles was not only history's most dangerous killing machine. Achilles grew up to be history's most gorgeous killing machine. And that wasn't all. Thetis, the mum, just couldn't help but dote on her only child. And of course, Peleus had deep pockets. So when Achilles became a teenager, mum decided it was time to send him off to private boarding school, which is what all the best families did with their sons. Achilles was actually privately tutored by, well, by a centaur. Achilles had a centaur for a mentor. The centaur's name was, was Chiron, and, and he was a famous centaur. He'd been around for centuries, half man, half horse, and his resume was really spectacular. He had tutored all of the best heroes, and of course, that meant that he was going to tutor Achilles. So, Achilles had headed off into deep into the tutelage place where Chiron did his work, high up in a mountain. And for a few years, Achilles was taught only not only the art of being a great warrior, but, but Chiron offered the full benefits package. So Achilles, by the time he was 18 years old, was not only a great athlete, he was a great healer. He, he could play the lyre with sensitivity and grace and, and, and sing a beautiful song if need be. And he had a complete understanding of arts and culture. And he could recite all the great Bronze Age epics by heart. And he had learned social skills and manners well beyond his years. In short, by the time Achilles was 18 years old, he was the complete package. Athletically gifted, stunningly hot, and likely the most educated and cultured 18-year-old boy in the entire Mediterranean world. But it came with a price. Because Achilles, along with all these other gifts, somehow along the way picked up a sense of his own self-worth or entitlement. Achilles, by the time he was 17 years old, had begun socially speaking about himself in the third person. He'd say things like, today the Achilles will go swimming. Who would care to swim with the Achilles? Today the Achilles will practice the javelin. Who cares to watch Achilles throw the javelin? He, he ended up with an insufferable sense of his own value and, and an ego which was almost inevitable given the way that he was raised. But he wasn't particularly happy. Because as he lay awake at night in his 18th year of his life, he was stuck with nothing to do. He was bored. He, he could go off on yet another hunting trip. He could, he could demonstrate his athletic exploits to yet a, another of his increasingly large posse of followers and admirers. But 
it wasn't a life for a hero. Achilles knew he was a hero. Achilles knew he had a destiny. Everything was in place for it. But, well, living in his dad's estate or off being tutored by Chiron the centaur in a mountain was, well, it was not hardly the showcase for Achilles the hero. What he knew he needed was some epic adventure, some chance to showcase to the world that he, Achilles, had arrived on the scene. But that showcase, that opportunity for Achilles to do that, is going to have to wait, folks, for about another two podcasts. Because we need to put a couple of tiny little pieces in place first before Achilles can launch off on his great epic adventure. We need to go back and decide who gets the apple of discord. And we've been waiting for a few episodes, but in episode number four, I promise you, an episode titled The Judgment of Paris, we will finally decide who gets that apple. And the decision that's made in that episode will generate a series of ripple effects, which will start in a mountain high above the city of Troy, but in very short order, make it to mainland Greece and That apple, a young prince named Paris with a terrible prophecy over his head and a gifted hero in the waiting named Achilles will all come clashing together and we will end up with our Trojan War. So that's a great place to leave our story for today. And well, you can say goodbye now. And if you're really having fun with the story, head over to my website where podcast number four titled The Judgment of Paris will soon be waiting for you. On the other hand, if you're the kind of person that likes doing backstory kind of things and talking about some of the issues or the concepts behind the story and digging a little bit deeper into them, then hang around. I'm going to be talking about some of the discounted Achilles stories, which I didn't include in my particular episode. So you have a couple of options at this point. And for those of you sticking around, let's get into it. Now, folks, when I sat down to tell you the story of the birth of Achilles, I faced a little bit of a new challenge. In the first two episodes of Trojan War, the podcast, I was dealing with a very limited number of primary original sources, which meant it was very easy for me to decide which sources to use to tell the story. I had very few to choose from. But then, when I got to the stories in episode 3, the stories of the early life and the childhood of Achilles, well, suddenly I confronted the exact opposite sort of problem. Folks, the ancient world was absolutely littered with Achilles' stories. And I was somehow going to have to choose which ones to tell you. So, why was the ancient world littered with Achilles' stories? Well, for this reason, really. Achilles is the central character in the entire Trojan War epic story, and you will decide over the episodes to follow whether you love the guy or whether you loathe the guy or, well, whether you have completely confused and ambivalent feelings about the guy. But the one thing I can promise you is that it will be impossible to ignore Achilles. He is, simply put, the most engaging, intriguing, and controversial character in the entire Trojan War epic. And that, I think, explains why there are so many Achilles stories kicking around in the ancient and, indeed, the modern world. So, a quick recap. Sometime on about 1250 BCE, the name Achilles first appeared somewhere inside of the oral storytelling tradition. Now, 1250 BCE, just to remind you, is the date that we usually ascribe to the Trojan War. Then, moving forward to 700 
BCE or so, a storyteller or a series of storytellers that we call Homer, then sat down and fleshed out and developed this Achilles character and penned a whole series of really good stories about Achilles in a book that we now call Homer's Iliad. And that, you think, might have been the end of it. But it wasn't, because Achilles was so fascinating and so compelling to storytellers, to writers, and, well, to audiences, that following Homer, well, the writers and the tellers could not help themselves. Everybody, it seemed, wanted to create a brand new Achilles story. And so, we ended up today with a host of Achilles stories. Now, folks, we only have a few of the ones that were likely ever written. Most of them well over the centuries due to, well, the terrible things that happened with time, with war, with fire, with disaster, with neglect, and with the frailty of papyrus. Well, many of the Achilles stories written back in the Romans and the classical era and right up to the Roman age have now been lost. But even so, there were still way more stories of Achilles' childhood and youth than I could possibly manage to tell you inside of a single episode of Trojan War, the podcast. And to compound my task? Well, that collected body of surviving stories is wildly contradictory. There are different plots, there are different approaches to the character of Achilles, and there are all sorts of crazily conflicting chronologies. And so, back to my original point. When I sat down to create the script for episode 3 of Trojan War the Podcast, I had some hard decisions to make. And of necessity, folks, I left a whole lot of alternate Achilles stories cut and discarded on the podcaster's cutting room floor. So now for the fun. In this post-story commentary, I think what we should do is review some of the stories of Achilles that I chose to not let in to my final cut of Trojan War, the podcast. So, let's begin with some stories of Achilles' birth. Now, folks, you already know the account that I chose to tell of that story. And inside of my account, the sea nymph Thetis quite deliberately murders her first six sons by drowning them. And then she would have murdered Achilles too, had Peleus not finally figured out what his reluctant bride was doing to the family babies. Now, here are some alternative versions of the birth of Achilles that I did not tell you. In one very common version, Thetis, it turned out, was not attempting to drown her babies when she dunked them headfirst into salt water. Rather, in this version of the story, Thetis was attempting to teach her children how to swim. Yes, how to swim. You see, Thetis was a sea nymph, and so she, well, I guess just naturally assumed that no child of hers would have difficulties with breathing salt water. Turned out, Thetis was wrong on this rather significant point. So, in this version of the tale, Thetis is not depicted as a homicidal maniac, happy to get rid of her half-breed children. Rather, Thetis is depicted as a loving but sweetly, innocently naive sea nymph of a mother, tragically drowning her very own children. Now, the loving parent motif actually shows up in many other alternate versions of the birth of Achilles. And the common denominator in all of these versions of the story is that Thetis is acting because Thetis is deeply distressed at her son's mortality. And so she is trying to avert that mortality. 
Uh, now, maybe we need a quick little bit of a digression here, a clarification on issues of mortality and parenthood inside of Greek myth. Ladies and gentlemen, inside of Greek myth, a child conceived through the union of a god and a mortal human is always 100% mortal human him or herself. Now, of course, the God part of the equation provides the child with a whole host of remarkable superpowers, so you get heroes like Achilles, but it's important to add, none of those superpowers will actually save this mortal child from an inevitable mortal death. And that brings us nicely back to stories featuring Thetis as a loving mother trying to make her children immortal. Now, by far and away, the most famous version of this story explains that Achilles, after being born, is taken by his mother Thetis, who then holds him upside down over top of a fireplace in an attempt to burn away, if you will, Achilles' mortal bits, such that only the immortal god parts of Achilles remain alive. Now, it might seem like a little bit of a harebrained idea to us, but in fairness to Thetis, the idea of burning away the mortality was not her own. In fact, Thetis could cite historical precedent. Folks, there was an earlier hero, way back centuries before Achilles was born, a hero named Heracles. Most of us now, of course, refer to him by his other name, Hercules. And the Heracles-Hercules story goes like this. Hercules was fully human but an absolutely remarkable hero. So, upon Hercules' death, when they placed his body onto a funeral pyre and burned it, as was the custom, well, apparently, according to legend, the human part of Hercules' remains burned down to dust. But the god part of Hercules somehow managed to assemble up into the heavens and become an immortal god himself. And so if we return back to the story of Thetis and her baby boy Achilles, it turns out that Thetis's only error was in attempting to rather fast-track the process. Thetis should have waited until Achilles had led a full human life and then had died before she began to burn the body and hope that the god parts of Achilles at that point ascended to the heavens. Okay, now there are two other common variants on the stories that I have been telling you. In the first variant on the story, Achilles is actually the only child conceived by Peleus and Thetis. There are not six earlier sons. And in the second variant in the story, well, after Peleus discovers what Thetis has been doing, regardless of her intentionalities, well, the Peleus-Thetis marriage comes to a rather abrupt and ugly end. And Thetis leaves the palace, abandons Achilles, and for a few years at least, returns to her life in the sea. Okay, so that's a summary of the birth of Achilles stories that I considered and then rejected inside of my telling. So now let's move on to the absolutely most famous episode in the life of Achilles. The famous story of Achilles' dipping and dunking into the magical waters of the river Styx. Now, at this point in the post-story commentary, I'm going to have to be a little bit careful so as to not violate my no-plot-spoilers promise. But here is what I can tell you. Folks, 
Homer's Iliad contains absolutely no references whatsoever to the story of Achilles and the river Styx. And further, so far as Homer is concerned, Achilles has absolutely no magical immunity from injuries whatsoever. And the evidence, if you're wondering, is in Homer's Iliad. There's one famous scene inside of the Iliad where Achilles absolutely refuses to go into battle because, well, for reasons I can't reveal now, his suit of armor has gone missing. And I think we can all agree that if Achilles was absolutely immune from any form of injury, then armor would be entirely pointless, unnecessary, and redundant on that hero. Now, then there's another story later inside of Homer's Iliad in which Achilles is actually fighting and cut by an enemy weapon. And inside of Homer's account, Achilles, just like any other human being on the battlefield, bleeds red blood. So, the question is, why did Homer choose in his wonderful account of Achilles inside of the Iliad to leave out the wonderful story of the river Styx? And here's the answer. Simply because the story of the river Styx does not appear inside of the storytelling tradition until many centuries following the publication of Homer's Iliad. In fact, folks, the earliest surviving account of the river Styx shows up in the first century by a writer named Statius. So, short answer, Homer did not include the story of the river Styx because the story of the river Styx was not created until about 800 years after Homer's death. But I, unlike Homer, had to struggle with the question of whether to include the River Styx in my account. And if you're wondering why I decided to include the River Styx story, well, for one simple reason, really. Ladies and gentlemen, the story of the River Styx is one of the most iconic and well-known of the Achilles stories. And I thought that if I left the story out of Trojan War the podcast, then my listeners would be disappointed, but also rather confused and keep wondering when I was going to tell that particular story. So, did I make the right call to include this story? Or would it have been better to stick with Homer's version in which Achilles has no magical immunity at all? Well, I don't really know. And all I'm going to invite you to do is listen to the remaining episodes of Trojan War, the podcast, and then make your own considered opinion. If it turns out at that point you think I was wildly off base in my call, well then just send me an email and we will chat. Okay, finally, let's wrap up this post-story commentary with a review of some of the stories of Achilles from his childhood and his youth. Now, the most common and famous story, of course, is the story of the centaur for a mentor named Chiron. I loved that story. Well, of course, I love saying centaur for a mentor, so that's one reason I included it. But you should appreciate that the Chiron story does not show up in all accounts. In fact, in about 50% of the accounts, there's no reference to any sort of centaur at all. And then there's a host of boyhood and young adult stories that I chose not to tell you. Now, most of those stories involve young Achilles accomplishing epically heroic or epically ridiculous, depending on your perspective, deeds. So, for example, in one story, six-year-old swift-footed Achilles hunts deer by outrunning the deer. 
And then in another story, Achilles, sometime about his seventh or eighth birthday, gets into the habit of fighting and killing lions. With, of course, his bare hands. And then there are the stories of Achilles' heroic diet. And the ingredients in that diet, a quick review, includes the innards of lions, the hearts of wild boars, and the marrow of she-wolves. It turns out, in the ancient world, the storytellers thought that a hero is what a hero eats. Now, most of these stories were written in centuries following Homer's accounts. And if you look at the stories, not a single one of them really has very much by way of serious literary value. But they are all, I suppose, an absolutely great deal of fun. Because what these stories do is joyously pile on to the myth of Achilles as a truly epic hero. Now finally, remember that story that I told you of Achilles and the poison snake? Well, I should tell you the truth. I actually composed that story myself. And so far as I know, that particular story does not appear in any surviving ancient sources. But folks, I actually included the story for two pedagogical reasons. First off, it is typical of the myriad, ridiculous, childhood of Achilles stories that I did not tell you. So I simply created one which would stand in as a template for them all. And next... I was trying to demonstrate to you just how easy it was, back in the ancient world, for even a hack writer to cobble together something ridiculous, but still absolutely fun, to add to the glorious legend of young Achilles. And that's likely as good a place as any to wrap up this post-story commentary. So I'd like to leave you with some wonderful news. Because... When you get to episode number four of Trojan War, the podcast, folks, we are finally, finally, finally going to return back up to Mount Olympus, and we are going to discover Zeus's plans for that incredibly discordant apple of discord. So in the meantime, have an absolutely wonderful day. Thank you very much for listening to episode three, and we will talk again very soon. Bye for now.